If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hello and welcome to this History Extra Plus podcast, Pearl Harbor, the story of the surprise attack. This is episode four, the day of the raid. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and in this five-part series on Pearl Harbor, I'm taking a look back at this pivotal moment in global history, speaking to expert historians about the long historical roots underlying US-Japanese hostilities, following the raid as it happened, and exploring its far-reaching consequences. Today, we'll be charting exactly how the attack unfolded on the 7th of December 1941, sharing the stories and eyewitness accounts of those involved, from Japanese pilots and US Navy personnel to army nurses and top commanders. It's pure chaos. There's so many explosions, so many aircraft that really the centering of that expression scrambled senses. That was really the case. It took several minutes, really, to understand what was going on, where the attack was coming from. It must have been an absolute terrifying pandemonium. Joining me to reconstruct this date which will live in infamy is Gavin Mortimer, military historian and author of multiple books on the Second World War. Gavin has also written several articles for History Extra on Pearl Harbour, full of personal stories and eyewitness testimonies that bring the attack to life, many of which you'll hear in this episode. 
But before we launch into exactly what happened that day, let's talk about ordinary life on Pearl Harbor for a moment. In 1941, around 30,000 US personnel were stationed at the naval base on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. In many ways, it was an island paradise. Alongside plenty of hard work, time off was spent at dances or in the bars of Honolulu, relaxing on Oahu's sun-drenched beaches or, if you were the head of the Pacific Fleet Admiral Husband Kimmel, playing golf. And on the day earmarked for the attack, Sunday the 7th of December, the US Navy personnel stationed there were due a well-earned day off. There is a quote from our Lieutenant General Shorts, who was the, the military commander at Honolulu, and he actually went out for dinner with another officer on the Saturday evening with their wives. And as they were walking back to their accommodation, the anchorage was lit up. The general's companion said, my, what an inviting target that would make jokingly. And of course, 12 hours later, that did happen. And a lot of sailors went out the the night before the 6th. It was a Saturday night. Um, So they went out and did what sailors do in time immemorial, had a good time, had a few beers. And the Japanese quite deliberately chose the Sunday uh, quite purposefully because they they knew then that it would be a a, a, a slower day and there would be people would be having a a lie in. and, And of course, they were right in doing that. But while the 6th of December turned into the 7th and the Americans recovered from the night before, little did they know that the Japanese had amassed a formidable task force that was creeping ever nearer across the Pacific and was now perilously close to Pearl Harbour. It was only um, on November the 23rd that the captains and the staffs, officers of the task force, were gathered by uh, Admiral Nagumo, who declared, quote, our mission is to attack Pearl Harbour. And he then described how the attack would unfold. It would be a two-wave attack of more than 300 aircraft, delivering uh, what he described uh, as a fatal blow to the American Pacific Fleet. So and there, there was a great deal of confidence within the Japanese Navy. Alongside this confidence, though, there was also a palpable tension among the Japanese fleet. The fighter pilot Ayozo Fujita later recalled, The night before the attack, I could not sleep. I drank six bottles of beer, but I couldn't get drunk. I couldn't get sleepy. I was awake all night until the morning came. Others, operating midget submarines and not expected to return, wrote goodbye messages to their families. At 5am, Commander Mitsuo Fuchida, tasked with leading the assault, joined Lieutenant Murata for breakfast. Good morning, Commander, he greeted him. Honolulu sleeps. Asked to explain, Fuchida went on. The Honolulu radio plays soft music. Everything is fine. In samurai tradition, Fujita and the other pilots changed into fresh clothing. At 6.05am, they climbed into their planes, ready to travel the 220 miles to Hawaii in what was termed the attack's first wave. After an uneventful flight, they arrived within sight of Pearl Harbor after 7am a moment that many of these Japanese pilots would never forget. Descriptions by the pilots, one of whom was Fushida, there's a gap in the cloud and as they begin to descend, he murmurs, oh glorious dawn for Japan as the sun breaks and down below he sees the the peaks of Honolulu and and there before him the the aircraft and the American Pacific fleet just really laid out uh, waiting to be hit. 
So with the Japanese pilots within touching distance of their target, let's just pause for a moment to remind ourselves of the strategy behind the attack. As I asked Gavin, what was the objective of this first wave? Well, the main objectives, I suppose, were if, you, if you'd asked at the outset, the Japanese would have replied to sink the three US aircraft carriers. But unfortunately, they were all out on operations. The last to leave, the USS Lexington, um, had departed at early on the morning of December the 5th with three heavy cruisers to reinforce the base at Midway. So, so that, I mean, that, that's, uh, that's again an evidence that the Americans were getting a little bit jittery and they could sense with the intercepted messages something was going on, but they didn't know where. So the, the Lexington sailed from Pearl Harbor. The other two were on patrol too. So, so that was, that was, would have been a, a disappointment to the Japanese. But nonetheless, there were 96 vessels of the US Pacific Fleet at anchor in Pearl Harbor. So the object was to was to sink the lot and really put out of action or sink or badly damaged to make uh, unseaworthy the, the vast majority of the US Pacific fleet. 40 minutes after the Americans had picked up the first wave of 183 aircraft, two had failed to take off. Uh, I always tend to think of those two pilots who, who must have been bitterly disappointed because they'd been keyed up and um, this chance to, to go into action for the emperor and, and their aircraft uh, failed to take off. But um, there were still 43 fighters, 49 high-level bombers, 51 dive bombers and 40 torpedo planes. And as they approached, it was Mitsuru Fushida who was leading the first flight. He later said, I've never seen ships, even in the deepest peace, anchored at a distance of less than 500 to 1,000 yards from each other. This picture down there was hard to comprehend. So they just could not believe their luck. Um, that they were lined up. The first target hit was Kanoe Bay on the east coast of Oahu. That was uh, the Navy patrol seaplane base comprised of three patrol squadrons totaling 33 aircraft. One of the eyewitnesses was an aviation machinist, Guy Avery, who was dozing in his quarters when he heard the drone of engines. And as he jumped out of bed and looked out of the window, he just saw dozens of Japanese aircraft, as he later said, beginning to fan out over the heart of the station and opening fire. And the hit on Kanoe Bay marked the beginning of a much bigger assault. The, the first bombs began to drop at 0753, which was exactly the, the, the moment that Fushida, who was leading the first wave, radioed to the task force, Tora, Tora, Tora. Tiger, 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 which were the code words to confirm that the enemy had been caught unawares. I mean, the, the Americans were caught completely unawares. After Fuchida issued that Tora, Tora, Tora order, the Japanese torpedo bombers split into two, one group heading for the west of the base, the other for Battleship Row, home to much of the pride of the Pacific Fleet. The ships USS Arizona, California... Maryland, Nevada, Oklahoma, Tennessee and West Virginia. As Japanese bombers emerged seemingly from nowhere, those stationed below were caught completely unawares. At first, when the air raid drill went, a lot of the Americans thought it was uh, just a routine. It was a Sunday morning drill to catch them unawares, they were a little bit sleepy. And that assumption was shattered by the explosion of a torpedo. This is now 7.55 that flooded the forwards engine room of a light cruiser uh, Raleigh. So there's now great confusion. Sailors aren't sure if it's a drill, if it's an attack. And then the explosions begin to tell them 
this isn't a, a drill. There was very little that they could do, the aircraftmen on the ground. That Some of them were, were opening fire with machine guns and rifles and just doing whatever they could to, I suppose, to this feeling of defencelessness where, where you're not armed and the enemy's attacking. There was one, a, a quote from our, one of the, uh, to give an example of how the Americans were caught unawares on board the USS Shaw, which was uh, docked in Pearl Harbor. One of the seamen, Pat Ramsey, gasped in astonishment as a Japanese torpedo plane flew overhead. And uh, he knew it was a Japanese torpedo plane because it was about 50 feet away and he could actually look up and he saw the Japanese pilot. They seemed to, for a moment, have eye contact and the Japanese pilot was smiling. And as the US Navy personnel began to realise the extent of the attack, the carnage continued as more torpedoes hit. The first torpedoes dropped by the torpedo bombers are very accurate and because the, the ships are just lined up waiting to be hit. So the, the light cruiser Raleigh is hit uh, at 7.57, a torpedo hits for Helena, uh, another uh, ship, Oglala, uh, which is moored alongside, is hit. Before long, word of an unexpected attack began to spread through the chain of command. At the Ford Island Command Centre, which is the command centre for the uh, for the Pacific Fleet, Lieutenant Commander Logan Ramsey, he issues the first official confirmation that they are under attack. And he says, air raid, Pearl Harbour, this is not a drill. And that's a message that's sent to Washington. At this time, it's, it's in Washington, it's lunchtime on a Sunday morning. Also alerted about what was happening was someone that we've met before in this series, Admiral Husband Kimmel. Kimmel was commander of the Pacific Fleet, who had thought it unnecessary to conduct long-range reconnaissance flights to protect Pearl Harbour, believing that an attack on America's Pacific Fortress was simply an impossibility. He receives word at 7.58 by telephone of the attack, and he rushes from his quarters, still doing up buttoning his um, pristine white uniform, and he stands on the lawn of his house and he watches in, in disbelief at the attack. And he's actually joined by his neighbour, Mrs Earl, who's the wife of a naval officer. And the two of them just stand. And she, she remembered later that she glanced at Admiral Kimmel and she said he had turned as white as the uniform he wore. Later that morning, Kimmel would be hit in the chest by a spent bullet flying through his window. Miraculously unharmed, he reportedly murmured, it would have been more merciful if it had killed me. It's no wonder that Kimmel turned white surveying the scene that morning, because stretching out in every direction in front of him was a scene of horrifying devastation. It's pure chaos. There's so many explosions, so many aircraft that really the centre of that expression, scrambled senses, that was really the case. It took several minutes really to understand what was going on, where the attack was coming from. And of course, the fact that so many of the, the, the Japanese bombs and torpedoes were finding a target was just adding to the carnage and the, 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 the terrible injuries being sustained by um, the burns and, uh, and shock and blast injuries being sustained by the sta- sailors. It must have been an absolute terrifying pandemonium. It's hard to imagine the scale and chaos of the scene at Battleship Row. One of the vessels hit was the USS West Virginia. That was uh, hit by an 800-kilogram torpedo, struck the forward ammunition magazine at one minute past eight. One of the sailors called Calderon, he was having breakfast uh, when he heard, as he, as he described it, he was having a cup of coffee and wham, 
uh, I heard, and then several more whams as torpedo struck. So he then rushed down once the initial shock and confusion had been overcome. Uh, sailors responded very quickly and very courageously. And he went down into, he knew what the drill was, he went down into the compartment to help in the counter-flooding of a West Virginia to stop it rolling over and and capsizing. Meanwhile, one of the mess attendants, who was an African-American called Doris Miller, he emerged on, on deck just wanting to help. And he was told by one of the officers to man the 50-caliber um, Browning machine gun. So not being trained in this, he was a mess attendant. But nonetheless, he just went and worked out for himself and was later awarded a Navy Cross. The West Virginia was was one of the lucky ones in a sense, certainly compared to the Arizona, which was hit uh, soon after the West Virginia. And again, Kimmel, he later said that he watched in horror as it lifted out of the water and then sank back down again, way down. And it was just, that was why... So many men, 1,177, died because they had no chance to get to get out. Also moored on Battleship Row was the USS Oklahoma. One of those stationed on board was a 17-year-old George Smith. He was stood on the deck of the Oklahoma as a Japanese pilot swooped in from overhead, bringing his plane in lower than the Oklahoma's crow's nest. Smith recalled, The guy opened the hatch to his plane and dropped his torpedo waved at me and flew off. The next thing I knew, there was a big explosion. The Oklahoma would go on to sustain several more hits before this huge vessel began to keel over. Mrs Earle, who I referred to earlier, who'd been the, the wife of a naval officer who'd, who'd stood and watched the, the initial attack alongside Kimmel, she said, quote, slowly, sickeningly, the Oklahoma began to roll over onto her side until finally only her bottom could be seen. It was awful for great ships were dying before my eyes. You know, we, we talk of scenes of horror. It's become a bit of a trite expression. But in, in the case of Pearl Harbor, to see ships, as, as Mrs. Earl said, dying before her eyes and knowing that within that ship there were hundreds of men dying was, uh, was a, 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 a ghastly prospect. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. As some watched in disbelief, others rushed to do whatever they could to help. As is often the case in such situations, there were stories of individual heroism, of sailors who just ran to cannons and began firing away, and and others who selflessly helped their buddies to safety. And and then, of course, the attack at the the Pearl Harbor Main Station Hospital, the um, Lieutenant Annie Fox, who was the, the, the head nurse, she was... From the, from the outset, very calm, and, and she saw straight away that there were going to be many, many casualties arriving. So she just began to organise her nurses and to, to prepare them for, for what, was, what was to come. Annie Fox's calmness is all the more impressive, considering the fact that the hospital was far from safe from enemy attack. In fact, one bomb left a 30-foot crater just 20 feet away from the hospital wing. Added to this, only 82 nurses were stationed at Pearl Harbour in December 1941, faced with an overwhelming amount of casualties. Some men were missing arms and legs, recalled the nurse Myrtle Watson. The saddest and most depressing cases were the Burns victims, she remembered. Some of the men who were brought in were charred to a crisp. Their bodies resembled strips of fried and partially burnt bacon. As the Japanese first wave began to turn back after dropping their deadly cargo, a second wave began to arrive. Once the first wave is is taken off, which is around about 6.20am, as soon as the first wave is airborne, the aircraft carriers cruise. And one, one should say, by the way, that while the Japanese pilots had the glamorous role, if I can put it like that, the ground crews worked feverishly to, to ensure that the second wave took off immediately after the first wave. So at 6.25, just five minutes after the last of the first wave had, had taken off, the carrier's crews begin raising the second wave of planes to the flight decks on the Japanese aircraft carriers. And by 8.40, the second wave of Japanese attack is, is approaching Pearl Harbor. And there were 57 horizontal bombers, that's as opposed to the, the torpedo bombers who would swoop down. Their task was to attack the airfields at Hickam and Ford Island, while 77 dive bombers were ordered to sink what remained of the Pacific fleet. There were also 36 Zero fighters who, as I just mentioned, they were really, they had sort of a roving role to to shoot up what they could find. So it was really to make it seem like one continuous attack. For example, during the the London Blitz, there were attacks, the, the heavier attacks on London, the, the first wave, the Germans would bomb and then actually return to France, load up on more bombs and return. So there was a break of three or four hours. But in, in Pearl Harbor, it was just it just felt for the Americans that the attack began at 7.50 and continued for nearly two hours. Gavin mentioned there that one of the primary targets of the second wave was Hickam Field. Hickam Field was an airbase, which, along with the seaplane base at Ford Island, represented a possible source of resistance to the Japanese bombers. 
and any possibility of resistance would have to be eliminated for the Japanese planes to escape unscathed. And so just to really strafe the aircraft is the pilots, the American pilots ran to, to try and take off and, and just to, 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 to inflict as much damage as possible. The, those sailors who I mentioned earlier who were, who were trying to fight back with whatever they could lay their hands on. Uh, at Kahaneo Bay, the um, aviation machinist who I mentioned earlier, Guy Avery, he responded very quickly and uh, he grabbed a um, Browning automatic rifle and fired a, a long burst at uh, enemy fighter as it came in low, strafing anything it could find. And other soldiers joined in, and they actually did manage to shoot down one Japanese uh, aircraft, one of 29 that didn't return out of 300. So they suffered very light casualties, but there was very little opposition in, in the skies and, and, and little opposition from the American battleships because they'd been um, badly damaged in the initial wave. To destroy the aircraft was was as as important in tactically at least on the day it was important strategically obviously the the main target was a pacific fleet to uh to, to knock it out of action but uh they, they had respect for the american aircraft that they knew that there were three squadrons so so that was that was part of the plan that um of the of the 350 aircraft they were des- given their uh their targets and, and uh, the american aircraft was one of them. As the first wave turned into a second wave that broadened out across the island, the US forces on the ground felt like they were under a relentless onslaught. But not all the Japanese were so confident, as small amounts of US resistance began to rally. There's a, a, a good quote for, um, a, a, well, an interesting quote from a Lieutenant uh, Zenji Abe, who was a torpedo bomber on the, on the second wave. And he said, a, a group of black puffs of smoke appeared to our right front. And then another group appeared quite near our formation, anti-aircraft far, except for scattered shots in China. It was the first time I'd experienced that. I felt awful. So it, it was a trepidation on, on, on his, uh, in, on his part as he came into the, uh, the attack. So the second wave actually began to hit at 8.50. By this time, they did encounter the, the few American aircraft who did manage to get airborne. And there was one of one of whom was uh, a um, Lieutenant Philip Rasmussen at Wheeler Field. And he remembered how, uh, I, I'll quote him, I ran down to the hangar line and it was chaos. Ammunition was exploding in the hangars, fires everywhere. An airplane would explode and in turn ignite the plane next to it. The only planes not burning were a few Curtis P-36. I jumped into one and got it started. So that is very much on, on their own initiative. And I think that's quite an important point to make. The Americans fighting back, whether they were sailors manning the Browning machine guns or uh, soldiers uh, on the ground just firing rifles, or in this, this case, Philip Rasmussen, it was it was their own initiative. There were very few people normally that would have a ground crew to, to get them in, to, to see them off. But uh, he just jumped into it, the nearest aircraft he could find, which obviously speaks volumes for his courage so at 9:15 Rasmussen and three other pilots engaged the uh the, the Japanese at 9000 feet that was really the first the first serious resistance meanwhile down on pearl harbor itself others were fighting their own personal battles for survival sailors who who were trapped down below uh who were desperately trying to uh to get out in the arizona for example there was a sailor called clyde coombs who with a handful of other sailors 
had uh, taken shelter in the gun room. The water was beginning to rise as the Arizona was sinking. And they so they decided to go topside um, at around about 9.30. He described how getting out on deck, they were shocked beyond belief, is, is what he said, uh, and what had happened to our home. And that's, of course, what, you know, what, what the ship was to her. To a sailor, it was their home. And he said, cried Coombs, quote, the deck was riddled with bullet holes and body parts were scattered everywhere. The body of one of my friends was hanging from a mast. We couldn't do anything to help anyone. So four or five of us removed some of our clothing and shoes and jumped overboard into the burning water. So he was one of the uh, 200 sailors who'd survived the Arizona. Also fighting for his life aboard the Arizona was the 21-year-old fire controlman, Lauren Bruner. Like Clyde Coombs, after the Arizona was hit, he found himself trapped on board, surrounded by flaming water, with burns that covered 80% of his body. In a moment of deliverance, Bruner and a group of others were spotted by Joe George on the nearby repair ship USS Vestal. George threw them a line and they climbed 70 feet to safety over the flaming water. Not everyone was so lucky. In total, 1,177 servicemen would lose their lives during the attack on the Arizona. When did it become clear that the attack was over? And can you give us a picture of the wreckage and the destruction that was left behind? At 9.55, so we're now two hours after the attack, uh, Lieutenant Subaru Shindo, he was circling Pearl Harbor and it was at 3,000 uh, feet uh, and it was his job to uh, to assess the damage and report back to his superior, who was Commander uh, Gender. And his rep- radio report was very short and to the point, inflicted much damage. Around about uh, 10 o'clock, the last of a, of a Japanese had gone and the aircraft of the first wave were returning to the task force and, uh, and each landing and then reporting to air officer uh, Masuda, whose job it was, he was, I suppose, keeping count, really, keeping a tally of, uh, he had a blackboard and tabulating the results. So by 10 o'clock, the, the attack was over and the the Americans were beginning to uh, bring hundreds of badly wounded sailors ashore. Uh, and again, civilians were helping. Um, quite an important point to make there. The nurses did a wonderful job, often uh, understated the the role that they had but also civilians just went down to to the anchorage to do their bit one of whom was um 16 year old mary ann ramsey who was the daughter of commander logan and she was on ford island and and she rushed to do her bit and, and she said that the first young sailor i saw was so horribly burned and he was covered with oil he was holding his hands out from his sides because the flesh was hanging in shreds he must have swallowed burning oil because he pointed to his mouth so there were some horrible injuries some terrible wounds men burned um, with third degree burns and other men missing limbs back at the japanese task force as admiral nagumo watched his pilots return from the deck of the aircraft carrier akagi the atmosphere couldn't have been more different 
the Japanese, it, it, it had been beyond their wildest dreams to, to, to catch the, the US. They knew it had been a, a, it was a surprise attack, but nonetheless, there'd been doubts about uh, surely they'll pick us up on the radar and uh, it can't go as, as we envisaged, but it did. And also losses were minimal. So over 350 aircraft that had attacked Pearl Harbor, only 29 failed to return, along with one submarine and five midget submarines, which had been destroyed. Now, Fushida, who I mentioned, he was in command of a first wave. When he got back at 12.30 and reported to uh, Nagumo, who was the uh, commander of the first air fleet, so um, in charge of the operation, the admiral asked him if he thought the US Pacific Fleet will be able to take to the sea within six months. And Fushida said, no, I don't think they will. He then asked Nagumo what the next target should be. He was up for going back. Um, so in, in effect, a third and a fourth wave, refuel, rearm and go back. And he said the dockyards, the fuel tanks and an occasional ship should be the targets. Very important, the dockyards and the fuel tanks. Opinion was divided among the Japanese naval officers. Uh, Nagumo obviously delighted that the attack had been a success, but would the task force be uh, located. He knew, of course, that there were three US aircraft carriers in the Pacific. He wasn't sure where they were. His greatest fear that the Americans were in a position to launch an attack on his fleet. His inclination was to withdraw, not to push his luck, that the attack had been such a success. Okay, we've done what we've come to do. Let's let's get out of here. We shouldn't uh, endanger our fleet. But um, some of his officers, uh, particularly the aircraft officers, were for another attack. They'd seen with their own eyes that the, uh, the damage they'd inflicted, and they were confident that the Americans were in no position to retaliate uh, that day. So let's hit them again. But in the end, Nagumo decided that they'd done what they'd been asked to do, what they'd been ordered to do, and so to withdraw, not to risk his his fleet. By doing that, they left the docks intact at Pearl Harbor and they hadn't destroyed the fuel tanks. In that respect, as much as there could be any positives, if you like, from the attack, it was that, that the aircraft carriers weren't at dock, weren't at anchorage, and that the fuel dumps and the, the dry docks, so that they could at least be able to repair the damaged planes as as quickly as as possible. What the what of course the Japanese didn't know was that um, at, at the time that they began their journey back because it was three thousand five hundred miles from Japan to uh, Pearl Harbor, so it's a huge distance. So uh, you, one can understand why the Japanese Navy would feel vulnerable because that's a huge distance to cover. They didn't know where the Americans were, so they began to uh, turn north at uh, twenty six knots and uh, headed away from Pearl Harbor. As the task force turned its back on Pearl Harbor and began the long journey back to Japan. Over in Washington, those in power were trying to get to grips with what had just happened. Franklin D. Roosevelt was hosting his cabinet. It was now in the evening Washington time and informed them that 18 vessels, eight battleships, three light cruisers, three destroyers and four auxiliary craft had either been sunk, capsized or damaged. So it was a catastrophic attack in terms of both material damage and personnel killed. While the full picture of events was still being pieced together back in Washington, 
It would later be confirmed that 18 American vessels, many of them key battleships, had been sunk or damaged that morning. 188 US aircraft had been lost and 2,403 US servicemen and women killed. Roosevelt was quite right when he told his cabinet during the meeting that evening. The casualties, I am sorry to say, are extremely heavy. But while the raid on Pearl Harbor was over, its colossal impact was only just beginning to be felt. Next week, we'll be looking at the attack's immediate aftermath and long-term legacy. I'll be speaking to the historian Robert Lyman about the chaos that the Japanese attack unleashed, tracing events all the way forward to today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorn. My guest for today's episode was Gavin Mortimer. And many of the quotes, statistics and stories that were shared in this episode were sourced from a detailed hour-by-hour account of the raid that Gavin wrote for BBC History magazine, including five personal stories from the attack, which you can read on our website at historyextra.com slash stories. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.